can open your Bibles with me to John chapter 16. John chapter 16, we'll continue our studies through the Gospel of John. As you're turning there, um, just a little bit of recap where we saw last week we started John 16. And we saw Jesus telling His disciples truth concerning what's going to keep them from falling away. The sermon was, will you fall away? And we ultimately saw the rock beneath the feet of every Christian is the Word of Jesus Christ. It's His Word that holds us up. And that's the means and mechanism in which God uses to keep us who belong to Him. And then this week we begin reading... You'll notice if you have a newer translation, at least in the ESV, they split verse 4 right in half. And so the first half of verse 4 is in the previous section. And then the second half starts in this section. And so I'm going to read from verse 4 through verse 7. If you'd like to stand with me at this time, we can read this together. John chapter 16, verses 4 through 7. And then we will pray and begin working through it. Verse 4, Jesus says, But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning, because I was with you. But now I am going to Him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. Thank you. You may be seated. As you're being seated, I'll ask you to bow with me once more in prayer. Heavenly Father, What a great and glorious promise is before us today. O God, the words of Your Son tell us that there is a promised Helper, one who would come and minister to our needs, and we are dependent on You to do that very work right now. Father, I ask that You would do as You always do and be faithful to Your promises. Father, I pray that you would shut my mouth from speaking anything wrong. And yet, O oh God, that you would fill it with truth and passion and glory, your glory. That we would see you and know you by the work of your spirit here today. Father, I ask that your son, Jesus Christ, would be seen as preeminent, that he would be lifted up. And we would worship him together as a result of our time together in the text. Oh God, move among us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So we begin looking here, and I'm not exactly sure why they divided that verse in this way. You could take that up with the translators. But we can deal with the words that are there, nonetheless. So we begin, we'll look today at the second half of verse 4. I did not say these things to you from the beginning, because I was with you. Before we begin our thoughts in this text, I'll tell you, you can see in your bulletin, the title of this message is The Christian's Great Advantage. The Christian's Great Advantage. And if you look in your text, you'll see Jesus uses that word, advantage, in the context of His going away. There's a benefit. 
There's something, something that we have access to that we would not if this had not happened. And there's a subject that I've been interacting with for a number of months, really looking forward to this text. Some of you guys know from our time together in Bible study, we've talked about this. What's the distinction or difference between the Holy Spirit's work before Pentecost, before He was poured out on that day, and the Old Testament? What's the difference between before Pentecost and now is what I'm asking. What does the Holy Spirit do differently for us than He did for them before? We heard just this morning in the Sunday school that every person in the Old Testament who was ever justified is justified in the exact same way that we are. It is according to the merit, righteousness, and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Same for them as for us. And the only way that we're connected to Christ in that way is by faith. And so we know that those in the Old Testament, where did their faith come from? You suppose they generated it themselves? Do they just work themselves into a frenzy to believe God? Or was there some spiritual component? God Himself, even as He does today, stirring their hearts and bringing them into that faith. That is exactly what's depicted in the Scripture. So we know the Spirit was active in God's people in the Old Testament, and yet there is a difference that we're going to see. And we're going to look at what that difference is. So we start today in our verse, verse 4. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. There are two primary reasons that Jesus had not spoken of these things to the disciples yet. Two primary reasons, and both of them are directly related to the fact that He had been with them. Here's the first reason. The first reason Jesus had not been saying these things up until this point is because they had been in His presence. They had known His presence. They were enjoying His presence. They're walking with Him, talking with Him. They've been ministered to by His words and loved by Him. There had been no need for Jesus before this point to say these things so long as they were enjoying His immediate presence. I'll give you a couple of examples of what I'm talking about here. They were enjoying the presence of Christ incarnate. First look with me at Mark chapter 2. Or you can take these down. Mark chapter 2, verses 18 through 20. We read this. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why did John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. You could go and read the illustration where he works that out for us. But just for our purposes today, we'll just take those first thoughts from Mark 2. The point is this. Why is Jesus not interacting with this thought yet before with them? Because He'd been with them. Because they were enjoying the presence of the bridegroom. They were enjoying the presence of Jesus at that time. John puts it this way in his first epistle in verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. John says, we saw him and we touched him. We knew his physical presence. Paul makes a reference to this as well when he talks about, I believe in 2 Corinthians 5 of Jesus, that they knew him according to the flesh at one time. 
but no longer. They don't know him according to the flesh. He's not physically with them. And the point is that up until this time in John 16, he has been with them and he's about to not be any longer. He's about to die, be buried in the grave for three days, and then he's going to resurrect. And then after 40 days, he's ascending back to the father and they're not going to know his presence in the way that they have up until this point. And so long as the light of the love of Christ was shining on them, there was no need to talk and focus on his physical departure and what that would what impact that would have on them. But in our text, Jesus is about to depart. So he begins dealing with the sorrow that his leaving is going to produce in them as well as how he intends to minister to their sorrow. He says, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. So here's the first reason. The first reason that he's telling them this is because he has been with them and they've known his presence. And the question is, have you known the joy of Christ's presence in your life? Do you know real soul joy at the presence of Jesus in your life? Not just hoping on hope or hoping in true things about Jesus, but do you personally know the presence of Christ in your life? Are you, have you come to be satisfied by His love for you? And are you currently enjoying the sense of His presence? Right here and right now, are you aware, consciously aware that Jesus is with you and that He loves you? Is that something you're aware of currently? Every Christian who has ever lived has known the ups and downs the highs and lows of the thing I'm talking about, of our ever-shifting experience. And at times, many of us would say, we know what it's like at times to, to have such an awareness of Christ and His Spirit in our lives that we can almost touch Him, it seems like. It's so real, almost tangible. And yet other times, we can be in despair and doubt and feel like we've been utterly abandoned. I'm saying to you, the first reason Jesus talks about this is because he had been with them and they had come to know and enjoy his presence in their life. And to give them this great confidence and certain expectation of his presence by the spirit, even in his physical absence. Do you see the point? They've come to depend on his presence with them. He's not going to be with them. And so he's bringing this up to give them hope for when he's not to continue to know the fellowship that they have come to know with him. That's the first reason. The second reason, the second reason he's telling them this is related to the fact that the primary assaults of those who opposed God before this point had been aimed at Jesus at, up until now. And after His death, that opposition is going to be redirected towards His own followers, towards His people. So the first thing is they would be encouraged by the work of the Spirit's ministry to them in Jesus' absence. And secondly, that they would be encouraged and emboldened to face the opposition and persecution that he's been describing so far in our text. And that's not to say that these disciples had not already been facing difficulty or criticism. They did. But the bulk of the opposition was at Jesus. And he, the Lord, had affectionately intervened. Whenever the aim had come against his disciples, you can go and read accounts of that. Why are your disciples eating without washing their hands? He defends them. He faces the opposition. He faces the crowd in their stead. What are they going to do 
whenever he's not there to do that anymore? How are they going to interact with that and deal with that? That's what we're driving. That's the second reason that we see. What were they going to do when he wasn't there? What hope could they have against this mighty opposition without Jesus being with them? You see, the attitude and the hatred of the world that we've been seeing. Jesus has said, this world's going to hate you. It's hated me. And in our last text, we saw they're going to put you out of the synagogue. They're going to kill you, imprison you. And the attitude and hatred of the world towards Christianity has continued right through the ages to us. If we're faithful, we're going to face the same thing. And we need hope in the face of this opposition that's found in Christ and what He's telling us here today. My question is, what will be the source of our encouragement and joy? What are you going to draw from? Where are you going to drink from when you're thirsty, when you're barren and worn out from opposition? Where are you going to go? Well, he tells us where we are to go. Verse five, he says, but now I'm going to him who sent me and none of you asked me, where are you going? What do you think that means? Jesus charges them, none of you is asking me, where are you going? If you remember that these words are being spoken in the context of this intense persecution, perhaps you'll begin to relate a little bit with the attitude of these disciples. If you realize Jesus has been talking to them about all of this persecution and suffering, Jesus says, I'm going away. And it's like their gaze is fixed on the suffering, the persecution. They're not even asking him, you're leaving. Well, where are you going? They're like, well, wait a minute, you're leaving. What's that going to do to us? You see, there's a very temporal focus revealed in the attitude of these disciples here. Their error and the error that all of us are likely to make is that they're more focused upon the physical implications of his absence than they were on his destination. Jesus is going to the Father. They're concerned what impacts that's going to have on us physically here and now. You remember back from John 14, Jesus says, You heard me say to you, I'm going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. And ask your question. Should we not rejoice that the Son has returned to the Father's side? Should the disciples have been elated, overjoyed at the prospect and reality of the Son ascending back to the Father? Should that not have brought them great joy? Jesus says as much. Unfortunately, our temporal focus often prevents us from rejoicing at eternal glories such as this. And it also keeps us from seeing the everlasting benefits that are provided for us in it. Consider this in light of all of this context. Here's the context. Suffering persecution, not a fun time on the earth. And there's not excitement. There's not rejoicing in joy. We're going on to hear an expression of sorrow-filled hearts. And yet, the result of that sorrow is directly related to a temporal focus. Listen to what Paul says, 2 Corinthians 4, 17-18. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. 
For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Here's the point. There's affliction. There's suffering going on. Paul's talking about. And he's saying these temporal things don't compare to the eternal glory of God. When Jesus talks about going back to the Father, that's eternal glory there. That's eternal greatness to consider. Not just a little bit of temporal suffering. Some people have said, have you ever heard someone say this, that if you're too heavenly minded, you'll be no earthly good? you ever heard anybody say that? If you're too heavenly minded, you'll be no earthly good. Well, I believe the scriptural argument is that our constant problem, mine, is that I'm too earthly minded, too temporally minded, too transiently minded, that I don't see eternal glories. And so I'm not rejoicing when I hear Jesus is going away. All I can think about is what impacts that going to have on me on the earth and not rejoicing in it. Now, in light of that, let me say this. It is never godly to ignore earthly responsibilities. Do you hear me? If you say, I'm not going to worry about my bills and my children and my responsibilities and all that God's given me because, well, that's just temporal stuff and I need to be focused on God. That's we're not allowed to do that. And yet an imbalanced focus on earthly things will always lead you to despair. Always. You know why that is? Because we yet live in a fallen world. Focusing on setting your hope on things in this world is going to leave you disappointed every single time. Yes, we've got things we've got to do, responsibilities, but we've always got to be those who are constantly looking upward and onward and the glory of God in the face of Christ is greater priority than any of these other things. Almost like I've got to, I've got to pull myself down a little to, to do this, but I'm constantly there. There, when our tendency, I believe, is to be so focused on here and what I'm doing and occasionally we look up for a minute rather than having God be the focus That's the disciples' problem here. Verse 6, he goes on and tells us, But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. You see, this next verse demonstrates an all too common experience for Christians. His disciples, we read, their hearts were filled with sorrow. What is the cause for sorrow in a Christian? What's the cause for sorrow in your life, in your heart? Now, surely there are legitimate reasons for Christians to be sorrowful. Jesus himself was sorrowful at different occasions. So we're not talking about inherent sin if you're sorrowful. It's perfectly appropriate. It's even necessary for a Christian to be sorrowful about their own sin. If you don't have sorrow in your heart when you sin, you're not a Christian. It is fitting. It's fitting for Christians to be sorrowful over the sin of other people. And there's nothing wrong with having sorrow over the loss of a loved one. Or even being sorrowful over painful tragedies that you face in life. The problem is not with being sorrowful. The problem is when our sorrow prevents us from rejoicing in truth and goodness. That's the point. Jesus observes, sorrows filled your heart. Is it wrong that the disciples are sad that their master and Lord is about to die? No. But that sorrow that prevents them from entering into the glorious truth he's been telling them. That's the misplaced sorrow that keeps them from rejoicing. Consider this from 2 Corinthians. I want to read 
for you. Chapter 6, verses 1 through 13. Just listen to this. What place does sorrow have in a believer? Second Corinthians six, beginning in verse one. Working together with him, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain, for he says in a favorable time, I have listened to you and in a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we're treated as impostors. And yet are true as unknown and yet well known as dying and behold, we live as punished and yet not killed as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing as poor, yet making many rich as having nothing yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children, widen your own, widen your hearts also. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Here's my question. If the sorrow you're enduring is not, it's preventing you from rejoicing in God, it's a problem. It's a problem. And I'm not saying there's an easy, easy fix to this. I'm not saying that people aren't going to endure great sorrow. But the problem demonstrated in, our, in these disciples and that we often face is that our sorrow keeps us from rejoicing in the truth of God. And it must not. You heard that list of all that Paul endured. A lot of cause for sorrow in there, wasn't there? And yet, there's a rejoicing. And, and here's the interesting thing. It would seem in that context that those who are talking about them see them as sorrowful. They describe them as sorrowful because of their situation and condition. And yet Paul says, in light of all of that, we're rejoicing. We're always rejoicing. And never forget his charge to us in Philippians to rejoice always. And again, I say rejoice. He wrote from a prison cell. He wrote as he himself had reason to be sorrowful. It's not wrong for these disciples to be sorrowful at the news of Jesus' death and departure from them. And yet their earthly focus kept them from rejoicing. Is that true of you? Does an earthly focus give undue strength to your sorrow? Can you still rejoice as you suffer? Can you rejoice in God as you face difficulty? <coughs> Verse 7, we go on and read this. Jesus says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. We start with this. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. The first thing that we see is Jesus' response to these disciples and their sorrow is a commitment to the truth. 
How needful is this message in our society today? Jesus was unyielding in his proclamation of truth. He says, I know you're sorrowful in your hearts. I'm not going to soft pedal truth to you guys. I've got truth to tell you. I'm going to tell you the truth. I'm committed to it. That's the state of Jesus. Many people today withhold difficult truth in the name of quote unquote love. We're going to love this person by not telling them the hard truth that they need to know, especially in the context of religion. People will not talk about sin. They'll not talk about our offense against God. Why not? Well, you're going to offend somebody. You're going to upset someone. You're going to make people sad and sorrowful. Jesus says, I tell you the truth. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, regardless of that sorrow. And yet we're going to see not completely regardless of it. He's committed to the truth and his love moved him to tell the truth, whether it made people sorrowful or not. And you're not going to outlove Jesus. If you think it's love that compels you to withhold hard truth, you're not going to love more than the son of God loves. And he was committed to the truth. Imagine this. Many of you probably have heard this illustration, but it's fitting. Imagine if a doctor were to withhold the truth concerning a deadly disease from somebody because he knows if he tells them about this disease, it's going to make them sad. It's going to make them upset. So he says, well, I'm just not going to tell them. That man's a monster, isn't he? He's withholding the news that they need to hear. And because they don't get that news, there's no cure put before them. And so they just die. There's no hope in that. Withholding the truth. When you withhold the truth, you're also withholding the necessary treatment. And I submit that if we neglect to tell people the truth, as Jesus did of their sin and their separation from God, because they might get upset with us, we are selfishly hating them, not loving them. If you don't talk to someone about these truths, you're not loving them, but you're actually hating them. There's a scripture that says that if you don't, Discipline your children. You hate them. If you are unwilling to discipline your children, you hate them. God says. Similarly, if we're not willing to confront those around us with difficult truth, it is hatred towards them. Most people, I believe, in this country today, and I'd even go as far as to say in this town, have no real interest in the biblical gospel because they do not realize the truth of their own sin. And their own separation from God. There are many who will rejoice even over this weekend in this town at the idea of Jesus' physical provision. Jesus will give you things. He'll make your life physical. See here the, the focus on the temporal, the physical. Jesus will give you things. But because they're not confronted with the truth of their sin, they're not prepared to glory in the cross of Christ. They don't understand that they themselves deserve to be there. That's why someone can say in the context of a youth group, we don't want to talk to them about sin because they've got self-esteem problems. It's like, hold a minute. Jesus deals with these things because this great love he has to share with the world deals with their sin. It confronts them in it. And in our context, Jesus is He's engaging with them around their sin. And we can say sin of not rejoicing in the truth and being sorrowful and blinded to the glory that is in this. Jesus did not withhold the truth 
even when it would upset his own disciples because he was committed to the truth, firstly. And secondly, that though the truth be hard, it also includes a gracious cure for their sorrow. Jesus deals with the point of their sorrow by telling them the truth. What does he say? Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. The only thing these disciples could imagine was that his going away would have a negative impact on their closeness and relationship to him. Now you think about this. The exact opposite is true. The exact opposite is true. They thought his going away was going to be a not a disadvantage. It wasn't going to be helpful. And the exact opposite was true. Can you relate with that kind of thinking? Can you listen to this? Can you think about this? I'm sure most Christians think that they would prefer to know Jesus physically. Again, a conversation I've had recently. If I gave you the option and said, I've got the power to translate you back in time 2,000 years ago, and you could go and be one of Jesus' disciples and walk with Him on the earth, how many people would just do anything for that? They, they think there's a greater advantage in being with Jesus physically than you and I have today. That's not true. It's not. There is an advantage if He goes away. Something greater and better for us as Christians this side of the New Testament than those who even knew Jesus in the flesh in His days on the earth. There's an advantage to us. I mean, it's tempting, isn't it? If you could hear Jesus' physical voice. If you could be in His physical presence and look at Him. If you could be embraced. If the Lord Himself could... Wrap His arms around you and hug you and love you. Wash your feet. Sounds incredible, doesn't it? And I'm sure that it was. And there's surely some special stuff going on in His incarnation. And yet, there is an advantage. I think if we're honest, we probably think the disciples had the advantage over us with regard to these things. According to Jesus, there is an advantage to His going away both for His disciples and for us, how can there be an advantage in Jesus leaving earth? What is the advantage He's describing here? He says, it is to your advantage that I go away. In other words, whatever I'm about to tell you is not possible unless I go away. Now, it feels almost wrong for me to make this next point. And yet... It's how Jesus worded it, so it can't be wrong, but it feels wrong for me to say it. So I'm just throwing that out there in order for us to understand the great advantage of Jesus going away. We must consider the disadvantage and limitations of his physical presence on the earth. Now, that saying something like that just tastes bad to suggest that Jesus had a limitation while he was on the earth. And yet that's the way he's arguing for if I do not go away The Helper will not come to you. That's what he's saying. The Helper will not come to you. You see, what we're not saying is that Jesus was in any way limited in His ability to love or minister to those who were near Him. And neither is it to suggest that Jesus' power to heal and save was limited by whether or not people were in His immediate presence. For He was at times pleased to heal people that were nowhere near Him. There are accounts throughout this New Testament that Jesus isn't even around the person and He heals them. 
His power is not limited by physical proximity to a person. And yet there is something about his physical existence upon the earth that was limited by comparison to what this helper was going to do. That's what we're saying. That's what we're saying. Consider it this way with me. The disadvantage of Jesus remaining on the earth physically is that his people were limited in their ability to commune with him. Whether or not they were close enough to him. Think about it. We heard again this morning. Peter, James, and John go up to the Mount. Mount of Transfiguration, right? What about the rest of the disciples? Oh yeah, Peter, James, and John beholding glory, greatness, wonder, and amazement. And they could go tell them about it. But the rest of them aren't really experiencing that with them, are they? This is the point we're driving at. And I wonder, I wonder... Can there be any greater sorrow than to not know the presence of God in your life? To the believer, if you've come to the point where you have this sense that God has nothing to do with you, there's nothing more devastating than that, is there? To be feeling as though you're separated from God. Well, think on this. The entire Old Testament reveals a people that were constantly seeking to know and commune with God. How? Well, often God would come and visit them in a very physical demonstration and display through great acts and wonders He did. But the people, when they wanted to commune with God, they had to go to a certain location, particularly the temple. They would go at certain times of the year to go and climb the mountain of the temple to ascend up to be in the presence of God. They had to go somewhere to be in the presence of God. You see... If Jesus did not go away, if he did not send the helper, if he was not ever living to make intercession for us at the father's side, we would be left utterly dependent upon physical manifestations for comfort and for joy. Your rock that you're going to cling to, if Jesus doesn't go away, is only ever going to be some physical thing, some temporal thing. That's what we saw. And I don't want to lessen the great wonders that God has done. I mean, I'm sure it was amazing to see a bush burning and yet not being consumed and hear God talking to you out of it. I'm sure that was incredible. And yet in these last days, God has done something new. God has done something different. God has done something. He's changed something with regards to how he communes with his people. This is what we're seeing. What is our advantage? He says, but if I go, I will send him to you. The great advantage that every Christian has that Jesus has promised to send us the Holy Spirit. No longer are we dependent upon a priest to talk to God for us. No longer are we dependent upon a prophet to talk to us from God. No longer are we limited and our access to God by physical location. That's what the advantage is. But if I go, I will send him to you. That means the omnipresent, all powerful third person of the Godhead has been sent to us. And sometimes we don't realize this when we talk about the spirits work in us and in our hearts and in our lives. This is God who's come. None other than God. There's weight in something like this. He's been sent to commune with us and restore our joy. You remember what Jesus said to the woman at the well back in John 4? He confronts her sin and she changes the subject and wants to talk about where the right place to worship is. This mountain, the one in Jerusalem. 
Jesus tells her this eventually, verses 23 and 24. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. What Jesus was telling her is it's not ultimately about this mountain or any other mountain or any other location. This is a spiritual worship. Now, I submit to you all of God's people throughout the Old Testament who'd come to faith in Christ, ultimately looking forward to the promises of God. All of them were being helped by the Holy Spirit. And yet they did not have this sense, this promise of this communion with God that's being promised to us now. That's been promised to us. That's actually guaranteed for us. The essence. And here's the point. The essence of the Spirit's work in our lives is that we would enjoy relationship with God. You want to know something? Jesus' work has been finished actually from before the foundation of the world. He was the lamb slain before the world was. He's already accomplished it. Your justification is as good as done even before He went to the cross. And He went and accomplished it. I want you to know something. That your eternal security in the presence of God in heaven when you die is fixed already because of what Jesus did. What's being told to you is your enjoyment of relationship to God here and now. Your access to God, not when you get to heaven someday. Today, right now, you can have access to God in this way. You can commune with God and have a sense of God with you. Hearing His voice leading you. That's the advantage. And this Spirit can be in all places at all times to every believer. No one is left out. No one's not getting to see. We all have been given this promise. Now, in light of that point, that the work of the Spirit in our lives is that we enjoy relationship with God. I want to start moving towards a close by asking this question. Why does Jesus say that He had to go away in order for us to know this relationship with God through the Spirit? Why did He have to go away? Why couldn't Jesus just stay there with them and say, all right, Spirit, come too. Make it a party. We'll all be here. Why did He have to go away? Well, there are many things we could consider concerning the nature of Christ's intercession for us before the Father. We talked about that. We could talk about Christ being the one to send the Spirit to us. But the most obvious reason for this truth, that if I do not go away, the Spirit will not come. The Helper will not come. Here's the most obvious reason. It's seen in what Jesus accomplished in between saying this to the disciples and His ascension back to the Father. Here's my question. What happened between Jesus telling them this, His going away from them, and then ultimately the day of Pentecost where the Spirit's poured out? What is there any event that happened in between those two points in history that's a little bit significant, you think? Is there something that God has done during that time? Well, consider it this way. Why were His disciples sorrowful? Was it not the prospect of His physical absence? It was the prospect of His going away. And as He went away, contained in that expression is a reference to His death. His death. Jesus says, if I don't go away. You see, one way to understand what Jesus is saying in our verses today is this. You could imagine Jesus saying, whenever He says, if I go not away, then I, the Helper will not come. Consider it this way. If I do not die upon the cross, 
for your sins. The helper will not come to you. You cannot have fellowship and access to God apart from substitution and an atonement being made. If I don't go away, this can't happen for you. That's what he's saying to them. I've got to go because otherwise you have no place before God and no guarantee of his presence and knowing him. I've mentioned this and we continue to see this throughout John. Think on this. People want the benefit of the Holy Spirit without the son. They want the blessing of the Holy Spirit without regard to their sins being dealt with. You do not get access to the spirit of God apart from the son and his death. He says, if I go not away, this helper will not come. You see, when we understand that it's the presence, this presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives is the way in which we are to enjoy fellowship and communion with God. When you see that, that you were separated from this relationship because of sin, then you're prepared to rejoice at Jesus' words. I'm going away. I'm going to the Father. Well, is there something you're doing on your way back to the Father? Yeah. I'm going to the cross. I'm going to die. The wrath of the Father that I deserve is going to be on Jesus. That's what He's telling me. That's where He goes. If you have not repented of your sins and come to trust in Jesus Christ, if you have not come to know the presence of God by the Spirit in this way, the advantage to the Christian to know the living God by His Spirit, if you've not come to understand that His cross was in your place, that His glorious resurrection from the dead is the grounds for your own, and you have no real relationship with God through the Spirit, I say again, we cannot bypass the words and work of Jesus Christ and hope to know the presence of the Spirit in our lives. But here is the Christian's advantage. Here's your advantage. And this is a neglected advantage, one that we don't often consider the glory of this. If we've trusted Christ, if you come to depend on him, if you've been reconciled to God by the work of his son, his triumphant victory on the cross, you are promised This great advantage to know the Spirit's presence in your life. And not just in this location, but everywhere you go. You have access to God by the Spirit. No good thing is withheld from those who belong to Christ. And every second of our lives ought to be directed by the Spirit's leading. If we neglect this, we're neglecting. The glorious benefit for which the Son of God shed His blood. He went away that we would be reconciled to God. And our experience of that reconciliation now comes by the Spirit's work in us. My prayer is that we would all know, love and worship God by this Spirit. That He would have His rightful place in the lives of those for whom the Son died. The last thing I would say to you today is this, in closing. I'm not calling for a separation of God's Word and spiritual experience. You understand? I'm not saying we walk around desiring something that's not already given in this book. What I'm saying to you is that the only way what's in this book is going to come alive to your soul is by the work of the Spirit. And as a Christian, if you're one who's feeling low, discouraged, if you see that there's a focus on the temporal that's bringing you down, you need the Spirit of God to pick you up 
through the promises in this book. And here's one of them. Jesus says you've got this great advantage by the third person of the Trinity. And if you're lost, it amazes me the blindness is so real. If you've yet to come to Christ, the blindness and hard-heartedness of those who don't see, they, they hear a message like this one and remain separated from it. There's no hope outside of this Gospel. I pray, I pray that if you don't know Jesus yet, you would come to know Him today. And as Christians, we have something to hold on to, don't we? A rock as we face difficulty and doubt and discouragement. A rock and this promised comforter. That I'll ask you to bow with me and we'll go ahead and close in prayer. Heavenly Father, O Lord our God, I thank You for Your kindness. Thank You for not leaving us alone. For not limiting our experience of You to some physical locality. But that You, the living God, have come to us and minister to our hearts by Your Spirit. Oh, the blessed Spirit. Father, please restore our souls to these things. Remind us of what is ours because of Your Son and Him alone. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.